For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Another super memorable parable from Jesus. This is a nice short one here. I'm just going to go ahead and read the whole thing. It's only six verses, and then we'll go back through and we'll talk about it. Jesus says this, and Luke, Luke often gives us the audience for these parables. This was something he said to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Can you imagine who he might have in mind? <laughs> Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed, God, I thank you. I'm so thankful. What a thankful Pharisee I am, God. Thankful that I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. <laughs> it would have been probably kind of surprising even to see a tax collector show his face at the temple. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. Amen. <laughs> but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man rather than the other, went home justified before God. <gasps> Shocking. <laughs> For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. He keeps saying that, doesn't he? So what do we have here in this parable? Short and sweet. Let's take a look. For, for one, in order to understand this parable, we need to understand the characters who are involved in this. And we've seen these guys before. It was to some who had this attitude, confident of their own righteousness and looking down on everyone else. So raising themselves up and lowering other people in their own eyes. And it's two men, a Pharisee and a tax collector. This is who this is about. Well, the Pharisee, we've seen these guys before, right? This is from the Aramaic word to separate. This is where they got their name, to separate, the separating ones, the separated ones. 6,000 elite members belonged to this fraternity in Israel at the time of Christ, according to Josepha. Separating, and they would separate, they were committed to separating from the pack and their devotion to God, their holiness, their demands on themselves, their upholding the law. Other people might take the shortcut, not the Pharisees. They were going to be strong. You know, you can almost imagine a group of runners running along the Pharisees. These were the group that wanted to break out of the pack and to be running with all the others behind them, just eating their dust. That's how they saw themselves, the best of the best. In Luke, they're the sin police. That's how we've seen them in episode after episode, criticizing Christ, uh, taking criticism from Christ as well. Jesus was dishing it out. These guys were so popular, Jesus had to speak out against what they were saying because everybody thought that they represented God's perspective. Eventually, they got to a point where they started plotting to kill Jesus because they were jealous of him, we find, and because of his criticism of them. They were worried they were going to lose some of their influence and possibly some of their other power and wealth. 
they're always top ranked in righteousness in this society. If you had a power ranking for righteousness, these guys would be right at the top. All 6,000 of them would be right there at the front of the pack. You know, if, if you could graph righteousness, you know, let's imagine on a scale from zero to 900. The Pharisees would be way up near the top. You know, this was the most admired, revered group in all of Israel. And that was about as far as you could get from the other guy in this story, the tax collector. The tax collector was the most despised and would have been ranked by everyone near the bottom of the righteousness graph. These were traitors. They had sold out their fellow countrymen to collect taxes for the Romans, which would have been akin to a Frenchman uh, deciding to work for the Nazis during World War II after France had been conquered by Germany. And so they had sold out their countrymen. Their money was declared unclean. They hung out with the riffraff of society, all of the sinners. This guy was the lowest of the low and the highest of the high. And here they are praying two very different prayers at the temple. Now, tax collectors are also the kind of people Jesus ended up hanging around a lot. Even picked one to be one of his disciples, Matthew, who ended up writing the first book in our New Testaments. And so here's the righteousness graph. And, you know, today we don't have Pharisees and tax collectors in the same sense of the word. And yet this mentality is so relevant. This concept is still relevant. It is with us today. You know, our, our righteousness graph might look a little bit different. You know, we might put somebody like Mother Teresa at the top. You know, if anybody was righteous, it was her. Still, you know, been dead for 15 years, still renowned for her righteousness her love for other people. And if you say, who's like one of the worst people ever to live? Some people might say Adolf Hitler, you know, way down at the bottom of the righteousness graph. If anybody deserved to go to hell, it'd be him. There's no way he's going to heaven. And if anybody's going to heaven, of course Mother Teresa would be there. And, you know, we might put other people in there. Abe Lincoln, Honest Abe, cut down the cherry tree, confessed it. politicians. We might put those way down the, 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 the graph here, you know, maybe depending on where you land. Uh, politically, you might put some politicians up at the top and others down at the bottom. Modern politicians, a lot of people would put them all down there at the bottom of the righteousness graph. Evil. Uh, what about LeBron when he played for Miami? A traitor. I think he's redeemed himself to some extent now. Hopefully a lot more in <laughs> the next two weeks. And then maybe you would land right here at 649 on the righteousness graph. You know, you're like, you know, I'm no Mother Teresa, but I'm no Adolf Hitler either. And you know, like, if you had to be like well, what's it take to get to heaven? You'd be like, well, somewhere downstream from me. That's what people would say. You know, you ask people, are you good enough to go to heaven? They might be like, well, I've been a pretty good person. Who was this parable told to? Those who were confident in their own righteousness. Isn't that what we have right here? Confident in my own righteousness. Apparently, what Jesus is putting forward here is that your own righteousness is not enough. 
And what we'll see is that he's going to provide a way where you can be confident in someone else's righteousness. You can put your trust, your confidence, your faith in someone else's righteousness. That's where he's going with this. You ask some other people and they're like, well, I've never murdered anyone. Well, isn't that those who look down on other people? Isn't that the same attitude Jesus is telling this parable to? That's exactly right. It's the comparisons to other people. We come up, and usually, you know, we come up with some sort of point scoring system where I get, I get mega points for things I already am doing. That's how I get my righteousness points. And the things where I fall short, eh, they're not that bad anyway. You really don't get that many points off for that. Other people, though, they, they get docked points for the thing that they're into, the thing that I don't struggle with. And so we have these arbitrary systems of earning merit, and it's, it's relative, too. It's really, I just have to be better than the next person, in my own opinion. And so you might have two people, they make up this righteousness graph completely differently, and they, you, know, you might be down low on theirs, and they might be high up on theirs, and you might have them reversed. And so this is the, the way that humans think, and really under man-made religion, this is the only option. When human beings come up with a religion, it's be good. Be good enough for the God or the gods or the all or whatever. And that is the way to however that religion defines salvation. Well, biblical, biblical religion is relationship, and it's completely different. And what Jesus came to teach is the truth on the matter, a truth that was already there in the Old Testament even, but it had been distorted by the most prominent teachers of his day. It's also important that we note the setting for this parable. Not just the characters, but the setting. And it says, where did they pray? They went up to the temple to pray. And that, you know, there were two times a day when everybody would go to the temple for like group prayers. This looks like it was one of the other times where people could just show up at any time and pray. Now, what was the temple? The temple was perhaps the greatest critique of religion in the entire Old Testament. A powerful teaching tool set up by God to teach the people something about God. Very different from pagan religion. You know, in pagan religion, the temple is where the God lives or the goddess lives. But it at the ribbon-cutting ceremony for the temple, King Solomon, he prays, God, we all know you don't live here. You could never live here. You created the heavens and the earth. How can you squeeze into this thing? <laughs> no, he says, this is the place where you symbolically dwell because you have something to teach us. And you know, in other religions, the sacrifices were the worshipers feeding the God. And God says in Psalm 50, he says, I'm not hungry. I don't get hungry. And if I were, why would I tell you? I own the cattle on a thousand hills. Why would I need to come to you to get some beef? And so the sacrifices in biblical religion were not for God's sake. They were for the sake of the worshipers to teach them something about God and about approaching God. In short, the temple taught two very important lessons about a relationship with God and about human sin. One is it teaches that God wants a close relationship with his people. From the very earliest days, before the temple was a permanent building, it was a tent called the tabernacle. And God said, when you set out my tent, 
I want you to set it up right in the middle of everybody else's tents. They were a, a group of nomads at the time, and so you'd have three tribes on all four sides of it for 12 tribes, and God was right in the middle. He put the priests on the inner ring right around his, his tent, and then all the other people around that. God is saying, I want to be close to you. When, when the temple was built, he built it right there, not out on a mountain somewhere, Mount Olympus. No, he built it right there in the city of Jerusalem, the heart of it all. God is saying, I want a relationship with you. I want to be close to you. From the very beginning, God created humans to be in relationship with him. But the temple teaches something else. Something's blocking that relationship. Something's blocking it. And Isaiah, it says, it's your sins that have cut you off from God. Because of your sins, he's turned away and won't listen. Genesis 2, the second chapter of Scripture, God says, in the day that you turn away from me, you rebel against me. The day you sin, Scripture calls that, wrongdoing, rebellion against God, he says, you shall surely die. And death, it's not just physical death, cut off from life, but cut off from God, a relational death. And so when we look at the temple set up, it's kind of strange. God is saying, I want to be close to you. But in the temple, you had this at the very center of the temple. This is where God was symbolically said to dwell. And in that room, God put, a, put some walls around it. And only God, that was like a sacred space. Only one guy once a year, the high priest, could go in there. And then just outside, the Jewish priest could come up to that wall, but no further. But even with that, God put a, some walls around that. And then... Up to that wall, regular Jews could come, but then God put a wall around that, and then Gentiles could come into that level, the court of the Gentiles, and then God put a wall around that, and then the rest of society operated outside of that fourth wall. So it's a little confusing. God is saying, on the one hand, I want to be close to you, and then he sets up something like this, where he's like, you can't come close to me. You know, ladies, imagine you marry a guy and he's like, baby, I want to have the closest marriage ever. And then he brings you home to a house like this. <laughs> where that middle room is where he lives. And you are four walls away. And you call him up, you're like, honey, can I come visit you in your little room? And he's like, oh, no, you can't do that. Why do you think I put these walls here? <laughs> if you came here, you would die from being in the presence of glory. <laughs> My glory. So it's kind of a mixed message. You know, does God need some counseling or something here? Does he have relational issues? No. He's trying to teach us something. What did they keep in that little room in the middle? One thing only. A thing called the Ark of the Covenant in the center room. Perhaps you've seen Indiana Jones. The first one. They were searching for the Ark of the Covenant. This Ark, it was just a box, a wood box covered in gold. And in that box was not God. In that box were souvenirs representing the sins of the people. So, you know, some people, they go on vacation, they go to the Grand Canyon, they bring back a little souvenir. They go to Paris, they bring back a little Eiffel Tower. God, you know, the people would rebel in this really bad way, and God would be like, 
I want one of those. Put it in the, put it in the box. <laughs> it was a sin box. It was a reminder. It was like some kind of like twisted scrapbook. <laughs> You're like, oh, there's the time. Oh, and look, remember that other time? <laughs> and so he had like sin right in the center of the room where he was. And then on top of that, it was a heavy lid of solid gold called the mercy seat or the atonement cover. Atonement means to cover over sin. And then on top of that, there were two statues of these angels with their wings outstretched. It specifically says the wings are stretched out and their eyes are looking down, down into the ark. And so as they looked down, what would they see? It would be a constant audience looking at the sins of mankind. Looking at all the way the people rebelled against God. And, you know, the, the angels who've never rebelled, they're looking down and they're like, God, you're just God. What are you going to do? You're a holy God. You said you're going to punish sin, that sin brings death. And once a year, there was this big ceremony called the Day of Atonement. That cover was called the Atonement Cover or the Mercy Seat. The Day of Atonement, that was the one day they could go inside that room. They would make this elaborate sacrifice and the priest would come into that room with blood and he would take the blood and he would smear it all over that cover so that effectively was between the angelic watchers and the sin. And so you got this <laughs> right there. And what do the angels see now? What they see is justice, that the blood represents death, that a life has been taken. And so sin did bring death. And so instead of seeing the sin, now they see the blood. It's a very important lesson. God was above all of this. Not in the ark. He's above the ark, looking down, and the, and the angels are looking down, and the atonement is made. And so it's ironic that the Pharisee is trusting in his own righteousness at the very place, the temple, where God is teaching the exact opposite. It's not like if you're good enough, you can go into the Holy of Holies. No, nobody can. Even the high priest had to go through an elaborate cleansing ritual, cleansing from sin, before he could go in to the holy place to make atonement for the sins of all the people. And here the Pharisees patting himself on the back Thank, thanking God that he's not a sinner like some others. He's completely missed the point of this. And so it's a Pharisee and a tax collector in the temple, not in the inside. They're in that, one of those outer courts of the temple, of course. And his prayer then, he says, I thank you, God. He stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you, that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. So who he's not and what he does, that's what he's thankful for. It's a prayer of thanksgiving, not your typical prayer of thanksgiving, not like we learned with the tenth leper last week, that kind of good thanksgiving. This is a self-righteous thanksgiving. He's thanking God for how he's better than other people. 
You can just see the sin graph, is laid, the righteousness graph is laid out in his mind, and he's at the top, and the tax collector and other sinners are down there at the bottom. And, you know, from one perspective, I guess he's right about the tax collector. The tax collector probably had robbed people in some sense of the word. He had done so much evil, you can see from his prayer, he's so ashamed of himself. Adulterers, there was probably plenty of adultery being committed by this guy. This guy was the lowest of the low. And so on the one hand, he's right. That tax collector is a sinner. What he's wrong about is about himself. I mean, maybe he hasn't done the explicit sins that that tax collector has done. Or has he? Think about it. You know, robbers, didn't Jesus say, didn't he criticize the Pharisees in this very book for how they would make these loans to widows, poor widows at exorbitant rates, And then the moment they missed a payment, they would go in and they'd say, sorry, Grandma, out on the street. And they would take that woman's whole property and claim it as their own. I mean, if that's not robbery of the most sinister nature, it's self-righteous robbery is what that is. What about adultery? You know, on the one hand, I mean, maybe they'd been faithful to their, their spouse, technically, but Jesus criticizes them for how they basically, they would just discard spouse after spouse as soon as a new one came along that looked better. And they, you know, they did all the right paperwork to get the divorce. And yet Jesus says, this is adultery that you guys are committing. Matthew 5, 27, he says, you ever look at a woman with lust in your heart? Well, if so, then you've committed enough adultery to go to hell. An impossibly high standard. And so Jesus, he's putting the bar back up where it belongs so that no one can say, I'm not an evildoer. They've done plenty of evil. He says, you guys, you're like cups where you you only clean the outside. On the inside, you're full of wickedness and all kinds of heinous sin. What about the great commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. This guy's not doing any of that. And so he's thankful for how he's better than other people. But in God's eyes, God says, my standard is perfection. If you keep the whole law and break it at one point, you're guilty of breaking the whole thing. Do you realize that? It's not good enough just to be better than other people. Even if you could be, you're still not comparing to God. He also thanks God for all the good deeds he does. He fasts twice a week. Okay. You know how many commands God uh, gave in the Old Testament to fast? One. One day a year. He commanded a fast on that day of atonement I was talking about earlier, where they were supposed to mourn their sinfulness and dwell on God's solution of the blood covering over the sin that they've committed and the death that they deserved. And here the Pharisee, he's completely missed that point, the atonement point. Instead, they're fasting twice a week And they still drank water and ate bread. And they would take ash and they would kind of smear it on their face. And they would walk around. They'd be like, oh, I'm so hungry. You know I'm fasting. It's Monday. Monday and Thursday were the days they fasted. And they'd walk around sighing and just acting all fasty (laughs) and miserable and pious and righteous, and they made sure everybody knew that they were a cut above the rest. They were the Pharisees. He says, I give it, so he's doing something, fasting twice a week, that God never asked him to do. 
And he's doing it in such a self-righteous way that has no morally good content. I give a tenth of all I get. Okay, God said you need to give a tenth of all you earn. But the Pharisees, they would go into the market and they would buy, you know, a kind of a, an apron full of grain. And they would be like, what if the man who sold this to me did not tithe on this? God would not be pleased with that. So what I'll do, just to be sure, is I give a tenth not just of all I earn, but of everything I buy. Something God also never told them to do. And so he's thanking God for how righteous he is. He does all these things. You can see the arbitrary things he's come up with to do. It's not the things God wanted him to do. It's the things that he wanted to do. And then to feel good about himself and pat himself on the back. So he's thankful for all the good deeds that he does. Things God never asked him to do. Meanwhile, you know, what about the things God did ask him to do? You know, he's definitely not loving your neighbor as yourself. He's loving himself, it seems. He seems like he's loving himself with all of his heart and all of his soul and all of his mind and all of his strength. It's a little confused on the great commandment. But he's thankful. Thankful for how awesome he is. A few other observations. The word I appears five times with every verb. I thank you. I'm not like other people. I fast. I give everything I get. It's I, I, I. It's a pretty self-focused prayer. He doesn't ask God for anything. In fact, he doesn't seem to need anything from God. He doesn't need a handout. He doesn't need God to give him anything. He's doing... He is actually, God's, God's pretty lucky to have a guy like me. I'm not asking for anything. I'm giving. I'm doing. I'm doing stuff for God. He's also alone. He stood by himself. Self-righteousness tends to have that effect. Alone. You can't let people get too close because then they'll see all the sin that's really there. People won't really want to get very close to you. A pompous jerk like this guy. And it, it tends to have a, a dampening effect on our ability to build love relationships. So you find me somebody that's, all, that's alone, that's lonely. I wonder if some of this legalistic, self-righteous mentality has crept back in. And they might even be holding people at a distance because they can't come under grace, but instead they are still under the law and having to prove themselves to everyone and resenting people for it too. Must be very careful. Even as Christians, we can switch, switch back to approaching God under this attitude, the self-righteous under law attitude. And that is the quickest way to kill your excitement in your spiritual life. It's the quickest way to kill your relationships Instead, we need to draw back near to God under a very different way of approaching Him. Let's look at the other prayer, the prayer of the tax collector. Remember, he stood at a distance, wouldn't even look up to heaven, but just beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Very different prayer from this guy. For one, he stood at a distance he stood at a distance. You know, it's, it's not alone like the, ta- like the Pharisee. But he's there. 
He's about probably as far away as you can get in the farthest corner of that temple courtyard. He knew the scorn he would get from coming to the temple to pray. You know, the Pharisee was alone because he's probably putting on his performance. The tax collector's at a distance because of his shame, because he knew he deserves nothing from God. And he's just hoping, he's casting himself on the mercy of God. You know, he's looking down at the ground. You know, the Pharisee was looking down on other people. This guy looking down at the ground in shame, without even the ability to lift his head, wondering, could God ever accept a guy like me? The Pharisee was certain God had accepted a guy like him. He knew God was lucky to have a guy like him. The tax collector focuses on what I need God to do for me. Whereas the Pharisee didn't need anything from God, was focused on what he had done for God. Yeah, he has but one request. Mercy. Mercy. The Pharisee had zero requests. He has one. He says, God, please give me mercy. And this word for mercy is not the normal word. It's a very rare word used here for mercy. In fact, it's a word that appears in its noun form in, in all other forms. It only appears five other times in the New Testament. But in Hebrews 9.5, look how this word is used. He says, Above the ark were the cherubim of divine glory, whose wings were stretched out over the place of atonement, the place of mercy. Remember that cover where the blood was smeared? The cover that stood between the wrath of God and the sins of the people? The cover that said, this is covered. Justice is served. That's the same word he's asking for here. Right there in the very temple court. What he's basically saying is, God... Give me the mercy seat treatment. Give me the atonement cover treatment. Smear me with blood. Cover me up, God, because I don't deserve anything. But I want your forgiveness and your mercy, God. Look how it's used in 1 John 2. He says Jesus is the, the sacrifice that atones. That's all one word. That's, again, the noun form of what this guy's asking for here. He's the sacrifice that atones for our sins. That picture on the Day of Atonement, it was, it was a sign, a symbol that foreshadowed what Christ would do. The blood of animals could never pay for human sins, but the blood of an innocent human who's divine, who could pay for the sins of the whole human race, that's exactly what Christ did. And when he died, he said, it is finished and now it's his blood that covers us and cleanses us and gives us mercy. He is our atoning sacrifice, our sacrifice that satisfies the wrath, the anger, the judgment of God. That's the prayer that the tax collector makes. Give me the atoning sacrifice treatment. Lord, I'm a sinner and I need you to cover over me. It's temple language that he's using here. Jesus said, I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Finally, we see the Pharisee, who was so confident of his own righteousness, 
That's how it started. And it ends with the guy who calls himself a sinner. It says he was justified before God. That's the same word, to make righteous. The Pharisee, confident of his righteousness, the sinner made righteous. Two very different outcomes. The humble one was exalted. The one exalting himself was taken down by Jesus here. What we conclude from this is that according to Christ, righteousness before God can't possibly be based on our works. Because this guy was declared righteous in a moment. Not a guy who trusted in his own righteousness, but a guy who trusted in the righteousness of another. The Apostle Paul had to learn this lesson. He says in Philippians 3, he says, I, I, I don't have a righteousness of my own derived from the law like that Pharisee. Paul used to be a Pharisee. He had some weird Frankenstein righteousness cobbled together from some sort of distorted reading and following of the law. He says, no, I'm done with that. I count that all to be lost, rubbish. He says, I have a righteousness which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. This parable here is probably the most Paul-like reading in the entire Gospels, in my opinion. With the talk of righteousness and atonement and justification coming not through the law, but through faith in Christ. One that is just given as an act of mercy. That's the teaching of this passage. And so if we go back to our righteousness graph, here's a more accurate rendering Here you have God, way off the charts, and then you have the Pharisee, way down here. This is a lot more realistic rendering of the human race before God. In fact, every human would just be a speck on the baseline, and God would be off the charts through the top. And here you have the Pharisee, I'm so thankful that I'm so righteous. My righteousness is so exceedingly great, God. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. And God looks down and laughs at human arrogance. And God says, thumbs down. No. Get out of here. God says, with an attitude like that, you can go to hell. If you think you're so righteous that you deserve to get into heaven, you are so wrong. Get out of my face. Come back when you're ready to talk reality. Come back when you're ready to talk humility. And then over here you have the tax collector. From God's perspective, they look about the same. Their righteousness from way up there. And how does he approach? Have mercy on me. A sinner. Oh God, have mercy on me. He comes asking for mercy, asking for an atoning sacrifice, asking for the blood to cover him. And that's the kind of approach God wants from us. And so it really leaves us faced with a choice. Here you have God, and there is you. There you are, in all of your righteousness. What approach will you take? 
Well, you'd be like, well, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I never killed anybody. I'm better than that person over there. Will you take the approach of the Pharisee when you come to God? Because God says that is unacceptable. That is unacceptable. If you're going to exalt yourself like that, you're going to be taken down. In fact, this is, like I said, this is a danger. Even once we are Christians, that we go back to the Pharisee mentality, the legalistic mentality. If you find yourself recounting your good deeds before God to try to justify yourself, if you find yourself feeling bad about yourself for not being good enough, what does that show? It shows you're trusting in your own righteousness. If you find your Christian life is lonely, could be self-righteousness, could be the Pharisee coming out. If you find you're lacking in joy, peace, and gratitude, what else could explain that other than you've switched back over to trusting in your own righteousness, just like the Pharisee? Instead, we need the approach like the tax collector. And if you're not a Christian, that means coming in the same way, asking for mercy. I know I'm a sinner. I got nothing to offer you, God. Please have mercy on me. And if we are a Christian, what God doesn't want is for us to come and ask him for forgiveness every day because he's already declared you righteous. And that's a declaration that will never be revoked. Instead, what he wants you to do is come to him and say, God, thank you. Thank you that even though I was a sinner, you, you call me righteous. And we reaffirm God's perspective on us, and we thank him. And then we boldly come in to his throne room to hang out with the creator of the universe a place we can rightfully be now. There's no more walls between us and Him. We can fully come confident with boldness and experience the joy and peace and closeness that He wants with us. It's a sweet life. And that's it. Yes, Lord, thank You that You tell us the truth about our sin. Thank you that you don't lower the bar at all. You don't let any sinners into heaven, God. And the reason that that's even possible is because of the price you paid. Thank you for the brilliant solution you came up for how to cover over our sins. And also thank you for how you communicated that over thousands of years through different pictures and predictions. God, thank you that you're not, uh, you defy all laws of religion. And you don't, you don't say good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell, but you say that forgiven people go to heaven. And I thank you for the forgiveness you hold out. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.